0: Capital of the United States, December 8, 1941. Today, the Congress of the United States convenes in a solemn joint session, a session that will hear the President of the United States deliver his message that will ask for a declaration of war with Japan. Senators
1: and representatives,
2: I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. President, Mr.
3: Speaker,
4: members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday,
5: December 7th, 1941, a date which will live
3: in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan.
5: A date which will live in infamy, these were the words spoken by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on December 8, 1941. The date in question was, of course, December 7, 1941, referring to the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor by Japan. As a listener, you are likely asking yourself, Okay History Club, what does an attack on a Navy base in Hawaii have to do with Marshall County? The answer might just surprise you. Let's start with the big picture. The most obvious effect of the Pearl Harbor attack is the countless veterans who fought and served in the U.S. military during the Second World War. This was the attack that pushed the United States to go from a policy of neutrality to an active participant in the war, after all. Evidence of this at our local level can be found on page 3 in the June 5, 1942 edition of the Marshall Gazette. Here, you can find a short article informing readers of the Navy's intent to answer the attack on Pearl Harbor with Avenge Pearl Harbor Day, held on June 7, 1942, six months after the bombings. This was a mass enlistment of Tennesseans across the state. However, that would be a very large topic for a single podcast. So let's narrow our scope just a bit. As the History Club researched Pearl Harbor through newspaper archives, we were surprised to find that there was not very much coverage. It was national news, but the small-town newspapers focused more on local happenings. There was a request in the Marshall County Gazette to remember Pearl Harbor in a comparison to the Alamo, which urged readers to contribute to Nashville's Pearl Harbor Savings Club. On an even more local level, the January 2, 1942 edition of the Gazette featured a small write-up informing the town that a Mrs. Lily Collins had received a cable from her son, Tally Collins, letting her know he was safe. And then we found an article by Rhonda Poole in the Lewisburg Tribune, published December 5th, 1991, detailing the stories of several veterans from Marshall County who were stationed at Pearl Harbor on that infamous day. These men witnessed and survived one of the worst attacks on the U.S. in our history. So, we will take a look at December 7th, 1941, from the point of view of the five from Marshall. Morris Looney, William Haynes, Rufus Foster, Swanson Stammer, and Lewis Wilson. This is their story.
6: The MCHS History Club presents The Book of Marshall. Marshall County, Tennessee is home to a rich and diverse history. Thank you for joining us as we investigate the past and preserve our stories for the future. The echoes of our past reverberate all the way through today. All that we have to do is listen. Welcome to The Book of Marshall. This episode of The Book of Marshall was inspired by the article Pearl Harbor Attacked. Written by Rhonda Poole, first published in the December 5, 1991 edition of the Lewisburg Tribune.
7: Prior to December 7, 1941, World War II had been raging through Europe and Asia for nearly two years. The United States had up to that point followed a policy of neutrality, meaning they had not entered the war in an official capacity. That did not stop the U.S. from supporting the Allied powers in various ways. This did not change with the attack on Pearl Harbor. At 3.42 a.m., a ship called the USS Condor reported it may have seen the periscope of a submarine near the bay entrance of Pearl Harbor. A few hours later, at 6.10am, nearly 200 Japanese planes would launch from aircraft carriers of the Imperial Japanese Navy's Strike Force. They would travel around 275 miles towards Oahu, the Hawaiian islands that house the Pearl Harbor base. There were reports of shots fired at a Japanese submarine in the Pacific near Pearl Harbor by the USS Ward around 6.45 am. This submarine, perhaps the same one spotted hours earlier, had entered the defense area surrounding the base. A message was sent by the USS Ward at 6.53am, informing their superior of their attacks on the submarine. This message will be put through the decoding process for translation. As the U.S. Pacific Fleet waits for confirmation of the submarine, the the at-the-time unidentified Japanese bomber fleets would appear on the radar on Oahu Islands around 7.02am these radar bleeps would be disregarded, believed to a flight of US B-17 bombers that were scheduled to fly in later that day. The Japanese planes would arrive at Oahu at 7.40 a.m. Nine minutes later, the first wave of attacking planes are given the order to attack at 7.55 a.m. The attacking on Pearl Harbor commences. For Marshall County residents serving at Pearl Harbor, they would have no idea of the events of the early morning hours. Morris Looney, William Haynes, Rufus Foster, Swanson Stammer, and Lewis Wilson were going about their regular duties and responsibilities, keeping up their military routines. Each man was about to witness and experience a different wave of the attack that loomed over them.
1: It would have been around this time that Sergeant Morris Looney was patrolling the island. Looney was 24 years old, serving in the military for the police with the Hawaiian Department MP Company at Fort Shafter, which was located three miles from Pearl Harbor's base. Most military personnel would have still been sleeping during the early morning hours. Sergeant Looney finished up his patrol and went back to the (laughs) barracks for breakfast until they heard loud noises and commotion coming from outside. Rushing out to investigate, Sergeant Looney was confused and saw planes and to hear the noises from the explosion. Climbing up to the roof for a better look, Sergeant Looney and his fellow MPs witnessed the beginning stages of the attack. Planes began to circle the island looking for more aircraft weapons to open fire on. Looney realized this was not a drill. As the attack commenced over the next two hours, Looney and his MP unit headed back out to the streets to help maintain order during and after the chaos. They opened the main roads to allow doctors and nurses access to the attacked areas. Anyone suspected of being an enemy alien would be rounded up in the aftermath. As the attack closed, the MPs were forced to maintain the military curfew to ensure order and safety for civilians and survivors on the island.
8: William Haynes was serving as a fireman aboard the USS Cunningham. He had just finished breakfast and was heading to his destroyer. When he noticed smoke rising out of Hickman Field, like Sergeant Looney, 20-year-old Haynes' first reaction is that the base was running drills in the early morning. Haynes finally caught a better glimpse of the planes flying overhead, likely shocked and horrified to see the rising sun emblem painted on the wing. Haynes started alerting everyone they were under Japanese attack. He recounted to Miss Poole in her article that firemen around him thought he was being crazy. The belief among the soldiers in the earliest stages seemed to be that Japan wasn't capable of this level of attack. As the bombs continued to fall, Haynes was proven to be right. Haynes and his firemen responded to the attack, manning their 5-inch anti-aircraft guns and firing at any random enemy plane that came into range. This was made more difficult. Due to the USS Cunningham losing power in the attack, the firemen tapped into the power of a neighboring tender ship beside them. They fired their guns till they burned up, overheating due to the lack of water coolant system for the guns that size. Trying to repel the attack, Haynes was quoted as being mad, possibly more at their feeling of helplessness to stop the attack. The ship they were on, Fortunately, did not suffer major damage. The Cunningham would depart with Haynes and the rest of its crew to search for the Japanese ships in the area later that day.
2: Rufus Foster was a 19-year-old Private First Class arriving at Pearl Harbor a mere six days before the attack. He was a part of the 4th Defense Battalion Marine Corps, and they were fresh off a tour of Cuba before being stationed at Pearl Harbor. Like his fellow servicemen, we have already covered, Foster believed the planes he heard flying overhead to be part of a drill. He had just finished his morning shower to begin his duty. Sunday was not a normal day for maneuvers, so Foster checked outside to see what was going on. Realizing that the planes were Japanese, Foster rushed to action to join his fellow Marines. Their weapons were still packed away, having just arrived along with the unit. In spite of this, Foster and the rest of the unit loaded up into trucks and headed to the harbor. Manning more anti-aircraft machine guns, Foster's unit opened fire on the Japanese planes in an attempt to cover and defend what was remaining of the Navy fleet in the base's harbor. Rufus would remain at this position for the rest of the day, ready and prepared in case of a follow-up attack.
4: For Swanson Stammer, a seaman second class, being topside from his time stationed on submarines was usually a reprieve from the cramped quarters. He was hard at work in his role as a cook. However, when he heard an explosion while in the gallery of the submarine base at Pearl Harbor, Stammer assumed that a drill was taking place this reoccurring thought among these veterans illustrates just how much of a surprise This attack truly was there were not warnings or high alerts in the time leading up to the bombings These soldiers literally woke up to a nightmare Stammer managed to get a glimpse of the planes yelling to everyone else in the galley that these were not US planes The submarine base being a prime target of these bombs, Stammer and the rest of his crews stationed there were ordered to the basement to protect the men from the debris and explosions. They would remain in that basement for over an hour as the attack subsided. As the survivors of the wrecked ships were brought into the submarine base, Stammer too sprang to action in his duty. Stammer and his fellow cooks began preparing extra rations and food for the wounded and survivors to help with their recovery. Stammer would work for 22 hours straight, making sure these men were taken care of.
1: Elsewhere on the base, Samuel Lewis Wilson, age 24, of Chapel Hill, was also stationed at Pearl Harbor. Although the History Club did not find any specific information about Wilson other than confirming his presence at Pearl Harbor, he too survived the attack. He would continue to serve throughout World War II, being stationed to guard the nuclear plant in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. This plant would produce the uranium utilized for the Manhattan Project. Wilson probably didn't realize that he would be present in both the entry of the U.S. into World War II at Pearl Harbor as well as present for the creation of the means to which the war would ultimately be ended. The Manhattan Project used that uranium to create the atomic bomb, the weapon used at the authorization of President Harry S. Truman, on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that ended the war.
6: Season two of the Book of Marshall is sponsored by the Belfast Store, Funtime Bowl of Lewisburg, Tennessee, Rebecca Mitchell of Russell Realty and Auction, the Collins and Dearman family, Al Smith, and Camp 297 Campbell Marshall Rangers. If you would like to sponsor the Book of Marshall this season as well, please email travishillis at mcstn.net. We are so grateful for your support. We would also like to thank one last supporter, and that's you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We are so grateful and humbled by your support. If you enjoy what we are doing, please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app. You'll never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. And now, we conclude our story of our veterans post Pearl Harbor.
2: No matter how long it
3: may take us, to overcome this premeditated invasion. The American people, in their righteous might, will win through to absolute victory.
9: Am I ever going to see Tennessee again? These were the words Rufus Foster recalled to Rhonda Pool in her article. Immediately following the attack, Pearl Harbor was on high alert. Foster and his Marine unit, nor any of the other survivors, rested very much in the days after. Foster and the rest of the survivors from Marshall County continued to serve in their roles, now deployed around the world in active duty for World War II. Following his service where he was stationed in New Zealand, Rufus Foster would travel back to Pearl Harbor for a visit with his wife, Mary Ellen Foster. Mrs. Foster told the History Club by phone that he was proud of his service, and he was glad they went back to Pearl Harbor, as it helped him feel like he was really there when it happened. Edward Swanson Stammer found himself back on a submarine when he was assigned to the USS Dolphin as its cook. He also served in Korea and Vietnam. Retiring from the Navy as a lieutenant, he passed away in July of 1994 at the age of 74 and is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. William Haynes would finish up his military service and eventually settle in Eagleville, Tennessee. He passed away in May of 2017 at the age of 95. Lewis Wilson would continue his service in World War II, earning several medals and distinctions for his efforts fighting on the Pacific front. He would also continue to serve well after World War II. Finally, to complete Morris Looney's story, Cade Wiggins sat down for an interview with two of Sergeant Looney's daughters, Kathy Smith and Bonnie Stockenshooper, to discuss Mr. Looney's experiences at Pearl Harbor and beyond throughout his career in the military.
0: I'm Kate Wiggins. I'm a senior in the MCHS History Club and we are here with Kathy Smith and Bonnie Schakenzuber, daughters of World War II veteran Morris Looney. We will be discussing Mr. Looney's military career and his experience during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Thank y'all for joining us today. Would you like to tell us a little about yourselves before we get started?
10: Sure. I'm Bonnie Schakenzuber, as you mentioned, and I am daughter number two of four. <laughs> and I was born in Pennsylvania where my dad was attending the Army War College, and that's in Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania. and It's a strategic leadership type of institution, So, we, but we were only there for like three or four months before we moved on to Georgia. So mm-hmm. my dad made a career out of the Army, and I grew up as an Army brat, and we moved from place to place throughout my childhood in my
3: early years. So I'm Kathy Smith, and um, I'm the baby of the family. I'm the fourth <laughs> daughter. Of, after I. had me, they decided to give up on trying to have a boy. Um, I was born in Fort Belvoir, Virginia, and unusually I have a, well, I have a sister who's 18 months older than I am, and unusually for the Army, we were both delivered by the same doctor, Mm -hmm. because you usually don't hang around a place long enough for that to happen, plus the doctor doesn't either. So um, the doctor gave my mother a date of January 31st. If she didn't have me by January 31st, she was going to have to stay in the United States with the four children, and my dad was going to go ahead and go to Libya. So I'm, she made sure she had me on January 31st. <laughs> um, like Bonnie, I grew up a lot overseas. Um, my dad retired out of the military or out of the Army in '67, and then worked for the State Department. So in addition to his Army service, then he went to Vietnam and my sister... My, and I lived in Taiwan at the time, mm-hmm. so...
0: You all have gotten to see a lot of the world yep. growing up.
3: In yep, in a lot of different schools.
0: Is there anything you'd like to tell us about your father prior to his service in World War II? He was a farm
10: boy. He liked going to church, which was always a fascinating curiosity. To me. Mm-hmm. But then when I heard about his farm life, it was like, oh, that was his only social time. He got to see his friends. He wasn't working. And best of all, they had, you know, nice potlucks. <laughs> but then... They left the farm and went to Texas for a brief time and then on to Akron, Ohio, where my grandfather worked in the tire factories. You know, automobiles were being mass-produced, so they thought that would be a great way to start a nice cash income sort of ramp towards middle class as opposed to you know being farmers. But that didn't last very long because the Depression came, and they thought... We'll go back to the farm in Alabama because at least we know we can raise our own food. So we may not have any cash, but we'll have food.
0: Your father was at Pearl Harbor when it was attacked on December 7th, 1941. Are there any stories or details you would like to share from that day that you've heard over the years from him?
3: So. Probably the story I remember the best is he always said that he always told us that he and his friend had just gotten off of their duty and they were going to go eat breakfast and they heard the bombing, they saw the smoke, so they jumped on top of the building to see what was happening. So if you've ever seen the Pearl Harbor movie where there's two guys who jump up on a rooftop of a building to watch, that one of those was our dad. Oh, and, wow. You know He's a fantastic storyteller, so we never really wondered if it was true or not until we saw the movie, and we're like, oh, it must be true. <laughs> he told us that way before the movie yeah. came out. So, And he even said... Um, He and his friends were still unsure what was happening, but he looked down and saw the red tracers coming at them. So he told them, jump off the building. Those are not our planes. (laughs) My mom's brother, younger brother, was going to
10: Kamehameha School. And he also was watching the attack from Kamehameha School. And fortunately, we know that detail because my husband was stationed in Hawaii for several (coughs) weeks in the summer. And Uncle Stanley said, I'm going to take you up and show you where I watched the attack. So he watched the attack over almost the whole island from his viewpoint. So he was looking down on the harbor, and he said several of the boys were there. So mm-hmm.
3: very interesting. I don't think anybody believed it was really happening. After that, he spent 48 straight hours like directing traffic, getting the ambulances, doctors in and out to help. Yeah, heavy equipment. And our two uncles we're down there for 2 weeks helping with the aftermath for mm-hmm. Harbor.
0: I could imagine the whole island probably went into a lot of chaos after that event. There was a lot of people unsure about what was going to happen and
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And Hawaii had a had some Japanese population and and in the a neighborhood where my grandmother or grandparents lived, there was a Japanese family who were taken to one of the Japanese camps in the United States. Mm -hmm. And she said, my mom said, she never saw them after that. She does not know what happened to them.
0: That's definitely a darker moment on our history. Is there any further information regarding his time in World War II that you would like to share, or...?
10: Not from that day. I know he said he was traveling back and forth from the harbor to other points in Honolulu. And he said when the second wave of planes came in, he was in a vehicle driving back towards the harbor and saw the planes, realized it, it was the second wave and pulled under a banyan tree just because they were strafing. He said, never happier to be under a banyan tree in my <laughs> whole life.
0: For how long did he continue to be in the military af- after the World War II? 1967, maybe? 67. So he stayed in there for a while. What was the rest of World War II like for him?
3: He was in Hawaii the entire the
10: time.
0: The entire time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to share about the rest of his military career?
3: So after World War II, you know, he stayed in the Army, as we mentioned, and he was in the Korean War. He said that was the coldest place he'd ever been. <laughs> and the second thing he said was he never wanted to visit Seoul because the two times he was at the Seoul airport, Seoul was burning. So, um, but he did a lot of um, military transport and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, mil- and continued in military
10: police work worked a lot with engineering. So he would do investigations, keeping the site secure as they were building, and then also looking at potential fraud areas, mm-hmm. whether it was in the building supposed to be 50% done because 50% of the funds have been expended, but there's only, you know, the footings have been laid. Mm-hmm. So he would, you know, he would be in charge of that sort of thing. So, And then he worked for the Army Map Service, where he would... Um, He was in charge of security of the facilities, but also helping keeping the maps secure and keeping personnel who worked there uh, sort of checking out their security clearances.
0: As with pretty much everyone in the military, it's a system and everyone's important in mm-hmm. their own way, because other people's jobs have dependence on them doing their yes. job correctly.
3: So I just wanted to say, so when we asked my dad one time, well, why did you join the Army? And so he said, well, I was living in Alabama, so I had three options. I could farm, I could work for the local factory, and because I'm a good athlete, I could probably play on their teams and supplement my income that way, or I could join the Army and see the world. <laughs> so so he went with number three. Yeah. And Bonnie was talking about the investigations that he did, and I think they had a, some of them had really a profound impact on him. And I think one of the ones that was, was he would have to investigate abusive situations. And so he and my mom both were big believers in education. Mm-hmm. And when he saw those situations, he would ask the wife, Well, why don't you leave? And he said, Time after time, they would say, It's because I can't support myself and my children. And so he said, You know, if I have daughters, they're going to be able to do that. So because I don't want them trapped in a situation like that, which I thought was very progressive
0: Mm -hmm. at the time. And that's something to very much be proud of. I mean, that shows that he's a very caring person.
3: Yeah, he was very family oriented. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I find funny or amusing about when he joined the army, they still had a cavalry Mm -hmm. with horses, and the the officers had to qualify on their horses. and and shoot off their horses and so because he was from the farm and he had several friends from the farm who grew up in farms too they used to go and watch the officers qualify and he said there was one horse that everybody loved because it was very smooth gait easy to qualify from you could shoot the targets Um, so one afternoon they were watching and one of the lieutenants shot the horse (laughs) so everyone was quite upset by the death of the horse, and also that qualifying just became a lot harder. And he actually, when we were in Iran, he met an Iranian officer who participated in the last cavalry charge in any war, which I oh, thought was wow. I know, amazing, uh-huh. amazing.
0: Is there anything you'd like to share about him after his service or about his personal life or anything?
3: After
10: he finished with the military, he went on for a very short stint at Gallaudet College for the Deaf and it's a government supported institution and he took me for a tour one time and I have to say for a young person I was in college at the time it was a very unusual experience because we went to the cafeteria first to eat lunch and the only sound was the sound the utensils made because of course no one was speaking. Now they were signing but I didn't sign, so I had no idea what they were talking about, and it just seemed really strange. And we walked through the dormitory, and he said, you see those big red lights? I said, mm-hmm. He said, one of those lights are in every room. And he said, what happens is if there's a fire alarm, they can't turn on a, an alarm because no one will hear it. So they turn on the lights, which are you know, these strobe-like bright red-orange lights, and so That's what alerts students to get up and leave the building. So, you know, it's kind of you learn to walk in another person's shoes in different ways.
3: And he took us to a dance (laughs) performance at Gallaudet, all the students, in Mm -hmm. sixth grade. And I was like, well, how does this happen if they can't hear the music because they were playing the music? And he said, oh, it's the vibrations. Um, So after he retired, he did work for the State Department, and he was sent to Vietnam. He was a, a public safety advisor, so he was in Cantho and Sadek. And he went in 1968, like May of 1968. And then at the end of, uh, well, in February of 1969, he was wounded and spent a year recuperating in a hospital in Manila. My, my sister, who's 18 months older, and, I, and my mother lived there. Bonnie was already in college, um, so we lived in Taiwan so that we could see him more frequently while he was in Vietnam. But one of the things that when he came home after his recuperation, he did his physical therapy, and I helped him with his physical therapy, and he said, the doctors told me that I would always walk with a limp, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to do that. So he pushed himself so that he could walk prior to his injury. And it was really, it was years before he told us more details about what had occurred, but obviously it was a an attack by the Viet Cong, and he said he was in his trailer. And he said what saved him was his rifle was on the other side of the room. So he was jumping across the room parallel. He said, Had I been standing upright, I would have just been cut in half. So it's Mm -hmm. when you hear things like that as a child, it's very, you think, wow, some people are very lucky. (laughs) He happened to be very lucky. That's
0: very lucky of him. And he was very determined to he's going to continue to live life as normal. He's right. not going to let it get him down.
3: Right. And that's, you know, Cade, that's exactly what his attitude was. He he was a very optimistic person because our I think one of our other uncles went through the depression at the same time. And I asked him one time, well, why are you, when I talk about, when I think about the depression, it's not so bad. You didn't think it was so bad. And he said, yeah, it's just, the attitude that you take Mm
6: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: and one of the things that body and I were talking about when we were driving up was how wherever we were stationed he immersed us in that culture Mm -hmm. yes our first assignment as a family that I
10: remember overseas was we were stationed to be stationed in Libya and my dad came home and said guess where we get to live and it's like, oh, where? And he goes, Libya. You know, he, he always was very optimistic that this was a learning opportunity for you. And you'll make new friends, both at your school and at the base, if you we were going to be stationed at base. And then as we'll be going to different places and seeing how people live and trying different food. So mm-hmm. he always wanted us to expand in that way. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, um, probably until about... Fifteen years ago, we would use phrases from different random countries in conversation, like with my children who weren't in Italy mm-hmm. you know, to say to say stop. Like if your if your mom wants you to stop doing something, they would say basta. Mm-hmm. And so when my children were were, were young, I would say basta. And so that they kind of you know other children would look and I'd say oh that means stop and then we would always say ciao ciao, (laughs) which most people thought was a Chinese phrase. I said no, it's Italian. Goodbye. (laughs) Right. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: So, so the Basta story, our our children as children we wouldn't stop until my mother started speaking Italian. (laughs) We knew she wasn't serious until she started speaking Italian. Yeah, and I think it really taught us that. People are the same everywhere, they want, we all have common values, they all want good things for their children, they all want them to be educated, they all want a peaceful, happy life, mm-hmm. no matter where you are. I think one of the things that we talked about too before we came was um, he was very, even though a lot of his assignments he was away from the family he always kept in contact with us. I mean, he was very present when he was <laughs> there and when he wasn't there he was always writing letters and you know and he taught me a lesson because um, my sister and I had uh, he my parents were stationed in Vientiane Laos and we stayed in Taiwan because of school. And he was like, okay, if you don't write me, I'm not sending you any money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he taught me, write that letter every week because you want that check every week.
10: He enjoyed, enjoyed meeting young people and really liked being with other veterans. So on Veterans Day, you know, he was just always interested in other people's experiences because he never thought, he never thought his experiences were over the top. It would always, because when people would say, oh, you were at Pearl Harbor, he would say, I'm not a hero. He said, the heroes are still at the bottom of the harbor. He said, we did our job and we tried to do the best that we could for our community and for our military and for the people that we were surrounded by. He said, but in the end, we were just doing our job and trying to do it the best way we knew how.
0: December the 7th, 1941, a date of infamy. The attack on Pearl Harbor impacted so many lives and family, not only for the men and women who were present on Oahu Island at the attack, but for the countless thousands who found themselves enlisted or drafted into the sequel to the war to end all wars. 2,403 US personnel lost their lives to the attack. 19 Navy ships were destroyed or damaged, and five young men, far from their homes in Marshall County, Tennessee found themselves facing an unimaginable event. They responded in their duties with unflinching courage. We dedicate this episode to these veterans and we hope we have represented them and their stories with the respect and honor they deserve. These were their
4: stories.
6: Book of Marshall, Chapter 7, A Date in Infamy, Pearl Harbor in Marshall County. This episode of the Book of Marshall was researched, written, and hosted by Tenille Alexander, Cade Wiggins, Kylie Carruthers, Jontavia Cross, Caroline McNutt, Catherine Burham, Cameron Reiner, Gracie Stevens, Lori Crowell, Urelli Rosales, Travis Hillis, Brooklyn Carter, Henry Pearson, and Lyle Nelson. Kathy Smith and Bonnie Schockenzuber interviewed by Cade Wiggins, Directed by Tenille Alexander. This podcast was executive produced by Travis Hillis and Lori Crowell. Theme song for the Book of Marshall, Clouds by J. Hill. His music is available on all streaming platforms. Additional music, used royalty-free, can be found in the show notes with links. Any errors made in the research of this episode are purely made in good faith and in no way done with intent. Sources are provided in the episode script. We would like to thank Linda Potts and the Marshall County Historical Society for their support and resources. Finally, we would like to thank you for listening. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review. We hope to see you next time on Season 2 of the Book of Marshall.